Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. Today I have a conversation for you with Lisa Sharon Harper, who most recently wrote the book The Very Good Gospel. So we're talking about good news in bad times, specifically her reevaluation of the term that uh, may be a little cliche for you, but the gospel, the good news, and how it's been maligned and abused and misunderstood. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. Lisa has something to say, whether you are conservative or liberal, I think she will stretch you with her perspective and have some really great insights from the text for you. As always, there will be links in the show notes to contact Lisa. If you want to find out more from her or book her for a speaking gig, follow her. You can check her website, shoot her an email if you want to. So with that, enjoy the conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, So you write about at a certain point in your life, you started sort of reassessing your understanding of good news based on what you had experienced with your own spiritual backgrounds. Uh, and you found it a little bit wanting or a little bit thin is the language that you use. Can you talk a little bit about that process and then what you found on the other side of that exploration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it was actually a very long process. It was kicked off in 2003 when I went on a pilgrimage um, and this pilgrimage was designed by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a, a nonprofit um, a campus group, that campus mission um, agency that I was on staff with for 10 years. Um, and throughout the 1990s, InterVarsity in, in various locations across the country had really deeply invested in racial reconciliation. But toward the end of the 90s, they began to hear back feedback from their campuses saying that they were feeling like racial reconciliation, you know, that was the language we were using back then, um, was feeling like an extra caboose on the end of a train. And it was dragging the train of discipleship. And so they were feeling like, you know, do we really need to do this? Is this, is this extracurricular? Is it, is it central to the gospel? If it's central, then yes, of course we need to do it, but it doesn't feel like it's central. I was arguing along with many other people within InterVarsity that yes, it's central, but quite honestly, we did not have, we did not have uh, a coherent theology of why it was central. And so our multi-ethnic director, multi-ethnic ministries director, um, Sam Barkat, went searching and he began to talk to rabbinical scholars about the biblical concept of shalom. And that concept really helps to bring everything together. Um, and then it was, it was his idea, actually, to begin to go on these pilgrimages. He, um, he and a team of people, and eventually including myself um, as a member of the advisory committee, um, put together this thing called the, the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. It was a two-summer um, pilgrimage. It started in 2003 and then ended in 2004. 2003, we retraced the African-American experience in the U.S., um, as well as the Cherokee Trail of Tears. 2004, we, went, we took students overseas, actually, and another cohort of, of staff went through the, the stateside um, pilgrimage. But the students that I took overseas were, um, we went to, we started in Dachau, Germany, and then went to the Balkans in order to understand how Shalom was broken and mended um, and, and continues to be broken and mended Um, in the Balkans, particularly Croatia, Serbia, and Bosnia. And so we, that experience, particularly 2003, the first one, I came to the end of that summer having walked on land where my own ancestors walked, my ancestors according to our family 
oral tradition, walked the Trail of Tears and escaped in Kentucky. We actually were in Kentucky at one of those points, and we, I believe we were standing in a park where my own ancestors must, may, may have escaped from, um, the Kentucky Trail of Tears Park. In that park, two chiefs died, and people were held in that park uh, in the middle of, of, a, of a winter, not just storm, but blizzard, waiting for the ice to either get hard enough to walk across or um, for, for like thousands of people to walk across or um, to melt so that they could actually go across in boats. And so we stood on that ground and I just, I imagined my ancestors there and trying to decide whether they were going to stay or run and deciding to run and what that was like and knowing that that two years later on the census they show up in Kentucky having never been on the census before before um, 1840 and there, there's no mother so the mother might have died on the trail and then going down into the deep south and and walking on the land where my ancestors most likely were enslaved um, or learning about their experience. And then coming to the end of that summer, and I was just really, really challenged by this one question. The question was, what does my understanding of the good news of Jesus's gospel have to say to this? What is it, what does it say to 16,000 people being forced to walk in a blizzard without shoes and 4,000 dying. What does it have to say to the fact that in 1800 or 1790 rather, there were 400,000 to 700,000 um, enslaved Africans on American soil, but by 1850, there were 4 million because, because people began after the abolishment of the Atlantic slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, when it, when it became illegal to actually import enslaved people into the U.S., they began to breed slaves, breed enslaved people by forcing women to be raped again and again and again. And knowing that my great, great, great grandmother, Leah Ballard, was probably one of those people. She had 17 children. Who wants 17 children? So I imagine myself going up to Leah Ballard, you know, in the middle of the night or even in the midday because she was probably raped several times per day trying to breed. And I knock on the door and I imagine myself telling Leah Ballard, great, great, great grandmother Leah, I have good news for you. I have good news. And see, my understanding of the good news was 100%. I mean, we're most fundamentally, I should say, shaped by the four spiritual laws, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? So I imagine myself telling Leah, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh my gosh, like the insanity of that just became clear. And, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. And all you need to do is pray this prayer at the back of the little gold booklet that I have, and you get to go to heaven. Isn't that great news, Leah? And I was dumbstruck. I literally, I literally um, had no words when I realized that my own understanding of the gospel has no words for my own great-great-great-grandmother. 
it's mute. It has nothing to say. What happened was I realized in that moment, or maybe over a little time when it just, you know, can began to sink in that if my understanding of the gospel is not received as good news by those who need good news the most in this world, maybe it's not good enough. So that is what really, that's what propelled me into a 13 year journey through the scripture into understanding more deeply the biblical concept of shalom. And what I've come to understand is that shalom in a nutshell is what the kingdom of God smells like. It's what you see when you look around the kingdom of God. It is what the kingdom of God requires of its citizens. And so I was really struck that, you know, in InterVarsity and in, in my, all of my previous um, Christian experience, we'd always talked about, or at least for like the last, throughout the 1990s, and especially the late 1990s, early 2000s, we always talked about getting our friends into the kingdom of God, you know? We want to we move our friends across the line into the kingdom of God, you know? And, and I, I mean, look, I probably, I probably have, I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that most likely I'm an evangelist, that I actually believe in getting my friends into the kingdom of God. I believe in that. But what we never talked about was what the kingdom of God looks like, what it requires, and, and requires of us right? We never talked about that. And when we did, we always talked about it in terms of moral terms. It requires us to be holy, requires us to strive for perfection, moral perfection. What we didn't do, though, is we didn't realize, or I don't think what we realized is, is quite honestly, what the concept of the kingdom of God and, and shalom tell us about what holiness looks like. So I think in my mind, the logical next question is your, your understanding of good news and gospel doesn't fit on a nice little four page tract anymore. It's, it's not a four step process. Yeah. Um, how would you describe it to someone though? Because it's that term gospel is thrown around in the scriptures all the time. And obviously it sounds like it has a lot to do with shalom. Um, yeah. If you're talking to someone who is just sort of completely foreign and has no idea uh, what that term means, what would you even begin to talk about? So what I would say is that the good news of Jesus is that Jesus is God. And God, the king of the kingdom of God, came to earth, busting through time and space in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And see, we have to understand a few different things, like about the ancient mind and the way that they saw, how they understood the image of God, how they understood the image or the salem of a king, and and what the significant what the significance of that was, the implications of that were in that day, because that is that is a central concept throughout all of Scripture, the image of God. Right? You see that on the very first page of the Bible, on the first page of the of the book of Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, on the sixth day of creation, which in this epic Hebrew poem, um, the writers, who I believe were actually a company of priests um, that were exiting 70 years of enslavement, right? 
Or even if you believe that it was Moses who wrote it, he was exiting 500 years of enslavement. Hello, somebody, right? So you have the context, the writer, no matter who you believe wrote this text, had just been colonized and freed. And now they are, I believe, no matter who is writing this text, I think they're writing it in order to discern for themselves how now shall we rule? Because you see that the, the, the pinnacle, the, the high point of this text is when you get to Genesis one twenty six, and after God has made the supreme creator God, supreme God, that's his name, right? So uh, says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. Well, you have to understand a couple of things. One, never before in the history of all humankind and all civilizations that came before, did anyone ever place the image of God inside all people? The image of God was only thought to be inside the king, born by the king or the queen. So for these writers, whether it's Moses or this company of priests coming out of the Babylonian exile, enslavement, um, terror, for them to place the image of God in all people is a democratizing act. What they're doing in that, when that just with those words, that, that one sentence, they are democratizing power. They could have grabbed power for themselves because everybody else did just before, I mean, before them, in all time before them. Or, and everybody pretty much did after that too. But they didn't. They, they cast the image of God out for everyone to bear. And then they said, in case you don't understand, and let them have dominion. In case you don't get it, bearing the image of God is, is tantamount to being a king or queen. So all humanity now according to these, the writers, needs to be interacted with, with the inherent dignity we would normally bestow upon a king or a queen. Now, now consider this. For in the ancient's mind, the image of God, or the image of the king, rather, wherever that image went, it was a marker of where that king ruled. So here on the first page of Genesis, the writers say that God says, now, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, why is that? Why does God say that? I believe it's so that the whole earth will know God rules everywhere. Because we bear the image of God and we take it all over the earth. In, in the Roman times, um, Caesar would, have, would put Caesar's image on a coin so that wherever that coin went in the empire, you would know Caesar rules here. We are like the coins of Caesar, except that we're not coins of Caesar, we're coins of God. Wherever we go, we are supposed to be a marker of where God rules. Now consider this. The ancients also understood the image of God, or the image of the king, to be a marker, an indication of how well that kingdom was thriving. If the images of the king were all over the kingdom and they were powerful, they were, they were everywhere, they were fine. You know, you knew that that, that kingdom is well, as well, is doing well, and, and the king is, is either beloved or feared, right? So you would, you, that, that's what the image of the king is supposed to be doing all over the kingdom. 
But where you saw images of the king broken, toppled, twisted, diminished, defaced, then you knew there was war against that kingdom happening, either from the outside or the inside. Now think about the implication of this. If we are all, all humanity is made in the image of God, then according to the text, we are all, all of us, created with the call of God in Genesis 1, verse 26, to exercise dominion in the world. And that word dominion really has been misunderstood. It really means stewardship. It means, it means to maintain, to maintain the wellness of. It also, actually, there's another really cool thing. If you go to Genesis 2, you can see the word is not used, but you see a picture of dominion when God takes the human and places the human in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it. Those words till and keep when translated from the Hebrew actually mean serve and protect it. So what it looks like to exercise dominion is serving and protecting. So here God has said to all humanity, you're supposed, I've called you and I've created you with the capacity to serve and protect the world. So when we govern in a way that diminishes or fails to recognize or even crushes the capacity of any people or people group to exercise dominion, then what we're also doing inherently in the text, because these things are inextricably linked, is we're also diminishing, failing to recognize, even crushing the image of God on earth. So what if when we do that, we are actually declaring war on God? You see, I think that, I think we are. I think that when we govern in a way that crushes the image of God, crushes the inherent dignity of people, fails to recognize it, limits their capacity to exercise dominion, either through oppression or poverty, then we are declaring war against God. And I think that Jesus came to earth for people like my great-great-great-grandmother and people like my great-great-grandfather who walked the trail of tears to say, I see you. God sees you. You too bear the image of God. And God is here. The king of the kingdom is here to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing you. Because to crush you is to declare war against God. Great-grandmother would jump and shout for that news. Yeah, that actually is good news. There's so many places that I want to go because you hit on so many just incredible insights. But let me, let me start with this. One of the things I love that you do when you, when you write and also when you're talking is you take these concepts that have been either underestimated or maligned within Christian faith, things like sin and dominion and good news and witness. Uh, and you don't just throw them out the window because they've been misused. You dig in deeper and you look at these texts and you say, there's more here. Like actually look at what the text is saying and your good news is going to get bigger. It's going to get more concrete. It's going to touch the ground in some really interesting ways. And I love that. Um, and a couple of the terms you do that with that I would love to just sort of hear you talk about a little bit, if you don't mind, are um, sin and witness. Because those are two things that, again, I have just like, you know, lights in the back of my head going off, like, get out of here, sin and witness. I don't want to hear about those. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of someone knocking on my door and pestering me to make this 
this decision, but that's not what, what's at the root of it. So can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because honestly, this was a, this was a more recent kind of aha moment for me because I began to realize it was actually in the writing of the book when it all kind of crystallized because this has literally been a 13 year process, like literally. I mean, the very first thing that I began to, to see in the text because I was taught it by my, my Shalom professor is that, that Shalom is about the, the radical wellness of all the relatedness in creation all the relatedness. And then when I began to, I talked with a rabbinical scholar myself, a Hebrew scholar, rabbinical scholars. And, and that's when it crystallized for me that the words tov me'od, you know, tov means good, me'od means very. And you find them, you find tov repeated seven times, which of course is the number for perfection in the, among the Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture. And me'od means forceful, abundant, overflowing, crazy, crazy, crazy good, right? So, so you have this, this word, this, this phrase actually, tov me'od, that is um, spoken in Genesis 1.31. And that's what God deems as perfection. God looks around all creation and says, this is tov me'od. So we know now, we can actually look at this moment. This is a snapshot of what God considers perfect. This is what God deems very good. And what is that? Well, the word tov is literally a connector of thoughts. It's something that in, it appears mostly in Hebrew poetry, epic poetry, and it appears as a literally connector of breaths. So it's like blah, 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 tav, or blah, 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 good, blah, 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 good, blah, 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 good. So the Hebrews would have understood goodness literally to exist between things, not inside the thing itself. So when you think about that, then you have to consider, well, why do, we, why do we understand goodness to exist inside the thing? Well, that's because we get our understanding of goodness or perfection from the Greeks. The Greeks understood it to exist inside the thing. So they were always concerned. The Greeks were concerned with being perfect. They were always concerned with uh, making the perfect table, making the, being a perfect kind of person, being, right? So rather than, rather than having perfect relationship, right? But the Hebrews were more concerned with relationship, the relationship and relatedness between things. So when God looks around at the end of Genesis 1 and says, this is child my oath, what God is actually talking about is the overwhelming wellness of all the relatedness within creation. The relationship between humanity and God is forcefully good. The relationship between men and women is forcefully good the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation is forcefully good. The relationship between all of creation and the way things work, the systems that govern us, is forcefully good. There is no cursing in Genesis 1, only blessing. So when we get now to Genesis 3 and we see the fall, the fall is that moment when we try to make our own shalom. We take things into our own hands. We try to get peace on our own terms. But the reality is God is the only author of shalom. God is it. So when we do, when we try to get peace on our own terms, we get what the only thing we can get, which is broken shalom. So all of the relatedness that God had declared very good, just a chapter and a verse before, all falls down. When I began to consider this, I began to consider the implications of that word, of that phrase, tov me'od, it struck me that if God declares 
tov me'od, perfection, the closest thing to perfection in the Hebrew mind at the time, to be located between things, then sin is also located between things. It's not about our failure to be perfect. It's about our failure to love perfectly. And Jesus actually addresses this many, many times, but especially, I think, most clearly in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus, said, Jesus talks about loving their enemies. He says, well, what good is it if you just love those who love you? I mean, you know, who, who, yeah, who, who like you and love you. Isn't that just like the people that you hate? You know, do better than that. Love your enemies. And then in that context, the next breath, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, you that feels like a non sequitur, actually, if you don't understand, if you don't connect it to what came before. He's talking about love. To be perfect is to love perfectly. So if God's call and God's desire and God's understanding of perfection is that we are created in an interconnected web of relatedness, that we all need each other. Every piece, every part of creation has a role with the other part is is meant to bless every piece of creation, then the things that we do that break relatedness, break that right relatedness between each part, that's sin. And that changes everything. It changes everything about our, the, the foundation of our faith. If I can actually believe in atonement, if I understand that understanding of sin, because atonement, I do, and I do. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. But the penalty for sin is not like a judge coming down with a jury. It's the natural repercussion of coming out from under God's umbrella of shalom. And what did Jesus do? Jesus became separation for us. That's the penalty. Jesus was separated from God. Eli, Eli, Sabachthani. I never get that right. (laughs) (laughs) He says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That That is separation from God. Jesus took that on, that separation from God for us as a result to pay for our our acts that have caused separation not just from god but from everything and in that jesus reverses the curse of the fall in that jesus makes it possible then and you see it you see it in the in the first century church you see it in acts you just see one by one by one all of the relatedness that was broken by the fall begins to come back together you see women come back and begin to lead. You see the relatedness between the systems and the ways things work now begin to be remended. In other words, no longer are they going to live according to how the empire tells them to live. Being in this, and Paul makes it explicit in, in Ephesians, um, sorry, in Galatians uh, 3, 27 to 29, when he says there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor women. He's not saying no longer do we have um, gender, no longer do we have um, religious affiliation, no longer do we have um, class distinction. No, what he's saying is no longer do you see people through the lens of power differentiations. Now, when you go under the water, 
and you come up, you see everyone, and you see the image of God in everyone, the call and the capacity of all to exercise dominion in the world. And that's exactly what happened in Acts. You end, and throughout you know, Paul's epistles, people talk about Paul being the you know, biggest misogynist. Not true. Paul is the one who actually proclaimed, hey, give, give a shout out to Sinke and, and all, Sink, Sink, um, Sinkte and also um, Junia, the apostle, the one who, you know, she's my homie who actually bore some lashes with me in prison. She's my homie. You got to like, make sure you give a shout out to her. This is not just homie, but she was the leader of the church over multiple cities. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. so, so if you understand sin, the concept of sin to be about being perfect, then it's an extremely individualizing concept. It makes it all about you. But if you understand sin as the Hebrews understood it to be about the break of relationship and relatedness, then it actually becomes about ethics. Then it actually becomes about how we engage the world, every level of the world, our own relationships, working all the way out to how we engage the nation next door or the nation across the world. And the implications of that are so widespread. When you think about the term witness, it's less knocking on a door and more the way that you interact with all of those broken connections. Exactly. Our witness, I mean, our witness, and this was actually one of the things that came up as I was writing is that I, you know, just did a little study of the word witness. What is a witness? Well, a witness is somebody who serves as evidence in a trial, right? That's what it means to be a witness. And Jesus doesn't say go out and witness. He says, be a witness. So what does it mean to be a witness? Well, it means be evidence. Well, what, was it, what would it look like then to be evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God? Well, it would look like being evidence that what Jesus said was going to happen when Jesus came, which was the freeing of the oppressed, the lifting of oppression and poverty off of the image of God on earth, that that is happening because of your presence. So you, when you write, you hit on all of these different connections. You, uh, you talk about gender, you talk about the environment, you talk about our relationship with God. And so we could talk all day about those, but I also want people to actually go read the book for themselves. <laughs> but there's one that if you don't mind, I'd love you to talk about because it feels um, just kind of like it's bubbling at the surface right now. And that's how you treat the word uh, azer because it's one of those those words that uh, has been misaligned and has been used in some really harmful ways. But when you unpack it in the way it seems like it was meant to be in the way that you explain it, it has some powerful implications that affect mm -hmm. us today and that should shape even maybe how we see and read the news a little bit or respond to the news. Can you talk about that? Sure. So Azer, you're talking about Genesis, Genesis two, yep. um, the creation of male and female, yep. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, man. Oh my gosh. And let me tell you the very first time I ever saw that there was, there was something in the scripture that I had never seen before was when I was led in a Bible study by a man um, who had done some deep work in this and was actually doing, I was on a pilgrimage. I was actually leading a pilgrimage of InterVarsity staff after I'd come back from my own pilgrimages. And this one was just based in Los Angeles. So he came and he, he trained us in Genesis. He, well, he did, he did a Bible study with us. And the way that they did that study was manuscript style. In other words, we all had to dig in for ourselves 
And then as a community, just show, this is what we see. This is what we find. And he broke down for the first time what I, what I came to then research and find for myself, what the meaning of Azar was. So here's the thing, is that first thing you have to understand about Genesis 2 and the creation of gender. And I, it's funny because I, I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday. I was at a conference of worship leaders um, at, a, at a fairly conservative space. Um, and, you know, and, and the a pastor got up and he was actually really jiving with something that I said. But in the midst of, stri- of jiving with something I said, he, he totally had what I believe I've come to understand is a wrong understanding of how men and women were created. He said what we all typically hear, which is, you know, Adam was, was made, Adam was made and then Eve was taken out of his rib and, you know, and then they all come together and, 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 and then they sin. I don't know exactly. I can't remember exactly where he was going with that, but that's what he said. And I just wanted to say, brother, thank you so much for, for hearing me and for, for, you know, for affirming that this is, this is striking you, but I need to correct you on something. <laughs> Because actually, Adam was not created first. Adam was created. And Adam is human. It doesn't mean male. It means human being. In Genesis 2, it says, God placed the human being in the, art, in the, in the garden. It's not a name. It's not a proper na- name, proper noun. It's the word, which is a gender-neutral word, human being. The first time we actually see gendered language in that text in Genesis 2 is when that rib is taken out of the human being. And there's, there's a separating. Now, this is really funny because, you know, in Genesis 1, what we see, and I believe, you know, I, I'm, I fall with like in the camp that believes these are written by different people, different groups. So Genesis 1 was written by that company of priests, but Genesis 2 was written by another, you know, person or, or group of people, right? And they had a different, they had a different goal of writing Genesis 2. It's a different story, literally. The first one is an epic poem. The second one is like intimate story. It's literally God in the muck, right? So in this story, you see the ruddy one, the human being, the like ruddy as in the color of earth, um, has that has that rib taken out. And in that separating Something very similar to what happened in Genesis 1 actually happens. A separating out of. In Genesis 1, you have the separating out of land from sea and, you know, from from the firmaments above. And there's a clarifying, right, that happens. Well, I think that's what happened in Genesis 2, that there's a clarifying. There's a separating out from, like, from, quite honestly, from uh uh, homogenous, not homogenous, what do I want to say, um, gender neutral human being to male and female, because the very first gendered language we see is ish and ishasha, ish being male, ishasha being female. And that happens when the rib is taken out. So the misconception about the creation of woman is that women came after and therefore are inferior or therefore are less than. Male came first and therefore is supreme, is superior, is what God actually had in the very beginning, right? But that's not the way that it happens. Now let's go back to the middle of that story where we actually see the word Ezar. Ezar. When God looks at the human being, this, this human, um, gender-neutral human, who is in the garden, God says, this ain't good. Humanity 
was made for community in the same way that all the animals are made for community. And so you have this, this moment where God takes the human and I think actually helps the human to understand that their own need when, you know, look, kind of doing the parade of animals saying, is that it? Is that your partner? Is that your, no, can't find it. Oh man. I don't, I don't, I, I'm, a, I'm lonely. I want a partner too. Like kind of coming to that self-realization and what God says, I want to create a help meet for you. And that word help meet is the word Azar. Azar. So what does it mean? Well, that word Azar is only used in two ways in the text in the entire Bible. It's either a military term where if y'all have you ever seen a movie about Vietnam or really any, any movie about war, you see the V formation of the men who are kind of walking through the forest. Well, the Azar is the guy at the very tip or the woman at the very tip. And so you have that person is responsible for all the other people who come after them. That person is the protector of everybody. So when God says, I want, I want, you need an Azar. He's saying you need a protector. You need somebody who is actually going to protect you. That's what's so deep about it, right? So it's like, whoa, like the, the conception of men is that men exist to protect women. But actually, you know, even if you were to say women came second and they are the Azar, well, they are your protector, men. That's actually what women exist to do, if, if that's your conception. But that's not mine. Mine actually says, or the way that I read the text, is that humans were created to have protectors on earth. In other words, we were all created to be each other's Azar. That this, you know, that, that separating out is the separating out of male and female in order to create Azar for each other. Yeah, that levels, uh, again, like your interpretation of good news, like in every area levels the hierarchies that we create and that cause um, some of the just nastiness and abuse of power that we see in, in the news today. Well, there's uh, also, yeah. I'm sorry, but I have to say this, is that the other way that Azar is used in the Bible, there's only one other way, and that is to, to describe the way that the Holy Spirit interacts with the church, hmm. interacts, well, the way that God interacts with the people, really. And so the way that God interacts with the people is as an Azar. <laughs> there's nothing inferior about that. Come on yeah. now. Yeah, if you're going to assign gender roles based on that text, they're not going to shake out the way that men often want them to. So two more questions for you. Maybe one just bundled together. We'll see where it goes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I appreciate about the way that you unpack the text, and I want to say this, this isn't a question, but your book is not a commentary on scripture, but it's some of the best work with scripture and commentary that I've read in a long time. So I want to plug that for people uh, if they're looking for, especially on the, the readings of Genesis or just spot on and deep and meaningful. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love is that when you unpack gospel and you unpack this story and this narrative and these pieces and these connections is that it moves in a different direction than the good news that many evangelicals grew up with in the sense that mm -hmm. in the traditional narrative of a lot of American white evangelicalism, it moves towards destruction. The world's getting worse and worse and worse, and it's all going to burn up and God's going to zap us out of here. So just hang on. Yours moves in the opposite direction. Yours is about repairing the things that have been broken so that things are actually healing and getting better. 
Can you talk about that move a little bit? Was that conscious? Where, where did that come from? I don't know that it was, I mean, I don't, I don't think I consciously thought of going in another direction. I certainly didn't go in another direction because I was responding to the opposite. I think I was, I went in that direction because that's the direction scripture takes us. Yeah. When we, when we look at the end of the story, that's where we end. We end with a beautiful city. We end with not having the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore, only the tree of life. Like we end with the healing of the nations. The nations exist and they are healed because of all of the war and destruction that has happened because of the breaking of the fall, you know, the breaking of relatedness that happened at the fall. So I, I think that honestly, I just, I think that that's where the story goes. If you read, if you read the scripture in the, as story, as a, as a grand meta-narrative, the story of God and God's creation. If you don't read it just as a thing that tells you, that gives you the scriptures that prove your understanding of the four spiritual laws or what your Bible said, what, what, your, what your pastor said last Sunday, but you read it on its own merit for its own self. It is a grand story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation and has and weaves that Genesis 3 theme throughout. You see it everywhere. Once you have eyes to see it, you see it everywhere. There's no way that you can, you can come to the conclusion that, well, it's all going to burn with the rest of it. And so we just, we don't need to, we don't need to care about it. Well, I, th- I think the only way that you can come to that conclusion is to read the text from the social location of the Romans, <laughs> as opposed to the social location of the Jews, um, the Hebrews, who were actually an occupied people, a colonized people, ones crying out, crying out for salvation from oppression, crying out for salvation from impoverishment. You either, and this is where I think most of what most white evangelicals in America have been taught to land, you land on looking at verses, at, at, at passages like Luke 4 and Luke 10 and Matthew 25, and you skip over them. You don't have, you don't even deal with them because you don't have a category for them. Why is Jesus even talking about this oppression thing? Like, oppressed? Oh, or, or you change what he's mean. Like, you literally add words to the text, which is sin, by the way. <laughs> the text, right? Like, you're not actually allowing the text to speak for itself. You're putting words in the text now. Oh, no, Jesus didn't mean oppression. Jesus meant spiritual oppression. Um, oh, no, Jesus didn't mean poverty. Jesus meant spiritual poverty. You know, Jesus didn't mean blindness. Jesus meant spiritual blindness. Um, no, <laughs> no. The question that a good friend of mine, Renee August, actually asks, and she's a theologian out of South Africa. She says, she asked the, the very good question. Who does that benefit? Who does that translation or, or interpretation of the text benefit? It benefits those who are colonizers. It benefits those who are dominating because it it moves your gaze from the pain of the oppressed back to the place of comfort that is really only concerned with your spiritual inner life, not with 
the powers that are levying oppressive burdens on your actual shoulders. Economic oppression, racial oppression, geographic annihilation of people and geographic exploitation. I mean, these are the things that when we look around our world today, this is what's happening in our world. These are the things that fill our news, our news feeds. But if you believe that, if you, if you, if you, if you over-spiritualize the text, then you really don't think that the text has anything to do with our actual world. But here's the thing. Here's another thing that actually really kind of blew my mind when I really considered it. Every single writer of the Bible, every person who wrote a single word that got included in the Bible was an oppressed person. Every single one. Everyone was a colonized person or someone under threat of being colonized. Even Song of Solomon is written by a king. It was a dinky little king in the middle of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked. That's what the Babylonian exile was all about. And it wasn't just exile as in, okay, y'all going to go over there now. It was war and enslavement. So when you begin to understand the context of the text, then you have to really ask yourself, is it possible even for those who have no or at least no recent memory of being oppressed to read this text and see what these oppressed people are talking about, to understand them? Isn't it an aberration of of good um, exegesis to erase their political, economic, geographic context from our interpretation. It's one of the reasons why I really do believe that it is imperative, imperative that one of the first things that we need to do to heal the church is to heal our relationship to the scripture. We've moved from being a people who are, were characterized as biblicists, like, you know, biblicism, by, according to David Bebbington, the church historian, was one of the markers of evangelicalism, in particular in the 19th century and late 18th century. Like solo scriptura, or at the very least, you know, uh, premissive scriptura, you know, the highest authority, right? But now we don't even know scripture to be able to make it an authority. So as a result, we're, we are able to be manipulated by the twisting of scripture, the erasure of scripture, the addition of our own words into scripture um, in order to paint pictures that benefit us. Yeah, it becomes a self-soothing, power-justifying, maligned text. Yes, yes. Which kind of brings me to um, the last question I have for you is, as I was reading through your text or through your, um, through your book, it was hopeful and realistic but optimistic, and it was really proclaiming good news. Uh, and then at some point, I flipped to the front to see when the date was, because I was like, this is almost too optimistic based on the news that I'm reading. And I don't think it is. That was just my thought at the time. I hear you. Uh, I hear you. And I realized it was, you wrote it, you know, pre-election. Uh, yes, so did. I'm curious, has 2017 and the, the weirdness, the awfulness that is not new, but maybe feels more prevalent, mm-hmm. has that 
shaped your understanding of good news at all? Has it, have you reimagined it? Have you reapplied it? What's that done? Yeah, what's that? It's a good, that's a really great question. I was, I'll tell you what, on election night, I was sitting in front of my TV um, late at night. I was, at first I was over at another, at a friend's house at a party that became a dirge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then everybody left and I was like one of the last people to leave. And then I finally got home around midnight, 1 a.m. And um, around 3.30 in the morning when number 45 took the podium and proclaimed his own um, victory, literally my body shook. Like I literally was shaking and couldn't stop shaking. And I've never, I have never had that happen before in my whole life. It was scary. I was like, oh my God, what's happening to me? But what happened, I was, I was, and then I started thinking, what is happening to me, you know? And the only words that, 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 could, that could describe it was that I felt like in that moment, like my permission to thrive, my permission, the permission for the image of God to be cultivated to, in me to its highest extent was stripped in that moment. There was a deep disillusionment the next day when we heard that 81% of evangelicals had, white evangelicals had voted for him. And there was an even deeper disillusionment that came when I found out that every arm of the church in America, the white slice of that arm, the majority of the white slice of that arm voted for him. So it's not even just an evangelical problem. I think that the problem is that our faith means very little to us and instead, our racial, social location is the thing people are, people are, um, are loyal to and are protecting. And so, I, I, no, I mean, my understanding of the gospel is the same. But I, I will say this, that, that when I was called on to speak at a watch night service that, that New Year's Eve, last New Year's Eve, um, by William Barber, and there were several other friends who were preaching throughout that watch night service, the thing that I, I went to was actually um, something that I don't, you don't normally get a chance to talk a lot about, but it's this moment in Genesis 1, in the very beginning of Genesis 1, where you see God creates the world, or God is, the, the, the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. And that word hover, I remember the moment that I was reading this and I was studying it in, um, in my writing chair, in my apartment, um, and it was, I was literally um, going back to rewrite chapter one of the book, which is about the vision of Shalom. And I was also, I was studying because I, I needed to do deeper study. So that was the moment when it struck me, who wrote this text? That if this was, in fact, the Babylonian priests, the pre, not Babylonian, but the priests coming out of the Babylonian exile, then they had experienced 70 years of, of being told they weren't nobody. They had experienced 70 years of not having agency, being told you were not created to exercise dominion. In fact, according to the Babylonian worldview, they were told they were created to be a slave of the gods. And it's coming out of that Three gener five generations, actually, if you consider how, like, how young they were having kids. Coming out of five generations of being told that, of being mastered, that they write the supreme Elohim, the supreme God, hovered over the deep. The thing is, the deep, the waters, that was the place 
where the gods of the Babylonians lived. That's where they lived. So they're not, this is not, nothing here is arbitrary. They are actually making commentary on the worldview of their oppressors on page one of, of the Bible. On page one. And what they're saying is, you think that you are supreme. You say that your gods created us to be slaves, but our God hovers over your gods, over the deep, over the place, the, 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 the worldview that said it was okay for you to enslave me in the first place. And that word hovered is not just, I used to think of like hover as being like a, um, like God moving over the deep, like, shh, you know, like, shh. but it wasn't that actually it was, it was the word, the word hover is actually like a, a chicken hovers over her eggs. Like something is about to hatch. It's like a brooding, like a, you know, you think you've ever seen chickens brood, they shake, you know, they're about to, they're, they're, they're something is about to hatch here. Well, that's what God was doing over the deep. God was hovering, brooding, something's about to hatch over the place of their oppression. And I remembered, or I, I thought about it. I thought these people had only known oppression for five generations. Could they have thought that maybe that was what all that life had for them? Could they have felt hopeless? Could they have felt like, you know, who is strong enough to free us from the Babylonians? Who is strong enough to break this? But what they proclaimed on their way out was that their God was supreme and existed over, over the home of their oppressor's gods. And then I thought, you know what? I thought back to my own ancestors. I thought back to Leah Ballard. I thought back to how hopeless things must have felt like for her and her mother and her mother's mother and her mother's mother's mother. I mean, nobody thought slavery could end in America. Nobody. Slavery was such, and, and let's go back to the 1600s, 1700s. Slavery was such a worldwide economic engine. It was like IT today. I mean, can you think of abolishing IT? You can't even imagine abolishing IT. It impacts every aspect of our lives. That's how enslavement, the, that's how that was. But God, but God. So I think about 45 and I, and I go back to Genesis 1 and I know this is just a moment because our God hovers over the deep. Well, I appreciate the inspiration, the insights, uh, the way that you highlight the text in a way that is subversive and I think even sharpens and speaks to our situation even more today. Uh, than it did a year ago. Uh, and so I hope that people go out and, and check out the book. Like I said, it is definitely worth the read. And one thing I didn't highlight and I meant to is you're incredibly vulnerable in it as well. It's both academic and personal uh, in a way that is really blended really beautifully. So um, the book is called The Very Good Gospel, which uh, I would definitely recommend and I'll include a link to in the show notes. Uh, if people want to hear more from you, Lisa, where can they go? Where can they, they head? Awesome. Well, I would, I'd love to connect with anybody um, yeah. who's, who's listening today. And you can follow our work at freedomroad.us. 
freedomroad.us, but it's not really US, really our, our work is global. And so dot us is what we like to say. Um, and it is, um, you can also follow me at lisasharonharper.com. You can always contact me through that website or at through Freedom Road. And I'm on Twitter, Lisa S. Harper, um, on Facebook and uh, Instagram. Instagram is also Lisa S. Harper. So let's catch up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. 